Islam is to bring the entire world under the banner of Islam and establish Sharia law throughout every nation of the world. Historically, Islam accomplished this through military means, but in modern times, they have an equally dangerous but more stealthy tactic that has been highly successful in many countries, including the United States. What is this strategy? You're listening to Evidence and Answers with your host, Pat Zucran. Pat is an author and teacher in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today, we're going to be listening to a very interesting and alarming interview with top Islamic scholar, Robert Spencer, titled Stealth Jihad. Listen as Robert Spencer unravels Islam's strategy for world domination. Let's join Pat now with his guest, Robert Spencer. Welcome to Evidence and Answers, and with us today we have a special guest, Robert Spencer. Robert Spencer is a best-selling author, one of the top scholars in our country on Islam. He's written numerous books on Islam, some very outstanding books. Some of my favorite include The Politically Incorrect Guide to Islam and The Truth About Muhammad and The Infidel's Guide to the Quran. Very helpful, very insightful material and you're going to discover that his research is quite in-depth and outstanding. Robert Spencer holds a graduate degree from the University of North Carolina and been a scholar of Islam for several decades and so it's our privilege once again to have Robert Spencer on our show. Welcome to the show Robert. Thanks, happy to be here. Well you wrote a book just a few years ago and I think it's a real important book. It's called Stealth Jihad. Now tell us about that book. Stealth Jihad is an attempt to shed light on a phenomenon that I think most people have no idea about. Everyone knows about terrorism. Everybody knows that there are Muslim groups around the world that want to kill Americans and blow things up. But very few people have ever stopped to think about, well, what is it that they want to do? Why is it that they want to kill Americans and blow things up? Their stated goal, if you look at their own writings, is that they want to impose Islamic law. They want to weaken the United States government and the United States and American society and ultimately replace it with the rule of Islamic law. That is the goal of terrorism. Now, there is also a large number of Islamic groups in the United States and around the world in the West and Western Europe and so on, that are dedicated to establishing Islamic law and its hegemony over the world. And they do not, however, work by means of terrorism. They work by means of legal initiatives, by means of various initiatives in the society to establish the precedent that wherever Islamic law and American law conflict, it's American law that has to give way and that Islamic law ultimately needs to be accommodated and we need to change the way we do business, change the way we educate our children, change all kinds of things in order to allow it to get to be practiced in the U.S. And that's the stealth jihad. You know, most people are led to believe that Muslims immigrating to the United States and other countries just want to live peacefully. They don't want to take over and instill Sharia law. You know, is, is this correct or... Are, is it like you're saying, there's another goal that we should be aware of? Well, some Muslims do want to live peacefully and not impose the Sharia law. Muslims are people like anybody else, you know, and you have a lot of people who call themselves Muslims who don't have any interest in the religion in particular at all, just as they're Christians who call themselves Christians, but they aren't really interested in living as Christians. 
and you have Muslims who just want to live their lives and have a job and take care of their families and so on. And that's great. But there are other Muslims who are working to bring Sharia law to the United States, and we have to be aware that that is happening. Now tell us, how do they go about doing this in this stealth jihad way that you're talking about? It's more political, like you're saying, isn't it? Yes. You take, for example, the Muslim Brotherhood-linked groups of the United States, the Muslim American Society, the Islamic Society of North America, Council on American-Islamic Relations, and others. They work in various ways. For one thing, they establish opposition to pretty much every anti-terror measure that's ever been proposed. If you ask them, every anti-terror measure is anti-Muslim and discriminatory and hateful and bigoted and ought to be scrapped. For everyone, they never saw one they liked. And also they work in workplaces and in schools to try to establish special accommodation for Muslim practices. And this confuses Americans because they think we have to have freedom of religion. We have to let them do what they want to do, and that's fine but they do not understand the larger agenda behind this. Islamic law establishes special privileges for Muslims and denies basic rights to non-Muslims. So, you have in American workplaces attempts to establish special privileges for Muslims and deny them to non-Muslims. This is not just a matter of accommodation of legitimate religious practices. For example, the J.B. Swift meatpacking plants in Nebraska and Colorado they both have large numbers of Muslim workers. And these Muslim workers, they started to walk off the assembly line on that time for prayer. And they were fired. And then the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission stepped in and said, no, you can't fire them for this. You have to let them pray. And so it was established at these meatpacking plants that the Muslim workers would get special break times for prayers that the non-Muslim workers don't get. And then something happened that the EEOC and the switch meatpacking plant did not foresee, and that was that the non-Muslim workers in the plants complained and said, well, now you're discriminating against us. We have to work longer hours to make up for these guys' special prayer breaks. But that didn't seem to bother anyone. And so their protest failed. And what was established in these plants was a special privilege for Muslims, that they can have these special breaks if you work in these plants and you're a Muslim, you get more breaks than if you work in the plants and you're a non-Muslim. And that's exactly in accord with the special privileges that are granted to Muslims in Islamic law. And so it's not a benign thing or something that doesn't have any connection to a larger agenda. It's also significant that these groups that pushed this accommodation were all connected to the Muslim Brotherhood. And the Muslim Brotherhood in the United States is dedicated in its own words, according to a captured internal document, to eliminating and destroying Western civilization from within and sabotaging its miserable house. Now, one real handy way to do that would be to challenge the principle of equality of rights for all people, equality of access to services, and so on, and to establish the idea that Muslims are a special class and have to be treated as such. So tell us a little bit about the Muslim Brotherhood. Who are they and what's their goal here? Sure. The Muslim Brotherhood was established in 1928 in Egypt, and of course now it's poised to take power in Egypt. But it's also an international organization, and it is the spearhead of the stealth jihad. It is the foremost organization in the world that's working to impose Islamic law on the world in nonviolent, generally in nonviolent ways, although it's also got an arm in the uh, Palestinian Authority, Hamas, which is anything but nonviolent. 
But the Brotherhood also is in the United States. All the major Muslim organizations in the United States, the Council on American-Islamic Relations, the Islamic Society of North America, the Muslim American Society, the Muslim Students Association, and others, they're all Brotherhood groups. And so when the Brotherhood says that it is interested in imposing Islamic law, in eliminating and destroying Western civilization from within, in this country, then we have to understand that these groups are working to further that agenda. Yeah, and you can get that information right on their website. They just come out and state what their goal is. Isn't that correct? Well, I don't know if it's on their website. I know that there is Ikhwan Web, that's the Muslim Brotherhood website. Right, that It is that an English-language website that is uh, very illuminating, and they're pretty forthright about it. But that particular language about eliminating and destroying Western civilization from within comes from a captured internal document that it delineates their goals for the United States and was released by law enforcement during the Holy Land Foundation trial in 2007. The Holy Land Foundation was at one time the largest Muslim charity in the United States. And it was shut down for funneling charitable contributions to Hamas, the jihad terrorist group in the Palestinian Authority. And so during the raid of the Holy Land Foundation offices, this document was found that explained what the Brotherhood was up to in the United States and also very helpfully listed its allied organizations here. Now, I'm sure you've shared this information with the government and the authorities. How did they respond to this? Well, I'll tell you, the governing authorities in the United States are pretty much clueless about this and willfully blind about it. They are not interested in pursuing it. The governing authorities in the United States actually are deeply infiltrated by Muslim Brotherhood operatives, and they have prevailed upon the military and law enforcement communities to actually scrub training materials for intelligence agents and for the military of any connection between Islam and terrorism. And so you end up having the Islamic jihadis speak about their motives and goals, which are deeply rooted within Islam, but the, our own law enforcement officials are not allowed to examine that, however illuminating it may be to help them understand what the jihadis are up to and who they actually are. And this is a, a clear victory for the stealth jihadis of the Muslim Brotherhood. You know, I was wondering if you could give us some examples, because some people out there are listening and saying, wait a minute, this sounds like something from, you know, the series 24 or something. You know, this can't be going on here in the United States. Unfortunately, it is. Look, you have the Obama administration very recently. You have military officials and intelligence officials ordering thoroughgoing examination of all training material so as to remove anything that offends Islam. Now, sometimes the truth might offend Islam. Muslims don't generally want people to know that Islam teaches warfare against unbelievers and their subjugation under the rule of Islamic law, and especially Islamic supremacist groups in the U.S. that are working for this goal. They don't want it generally known because then we wouldn't be so complacent. And so the military and intelligence officials are playing right into their hands and allowing them to do what they want, doing exactly what they want. Yeah, you know, we see a pattern there in Europe in countries like England where, you know, when Muslims move in, they're law-abiding citizens and are relatively peaceful and don't make any commotion. But when they get to about 10% of the population, then suddenly you start seeing them becoming much more vocal and demanding the institution of Sharia law. Isn't that what we're seeing in London and England and places like that? Yeah, and we're going to see it here. It's not just Sharia law as a whole. 
It's Sharia law bit by bit and piece by piece. We already see it really with the attempts to clamp down on free speech about Islam and jihad, that there is a general effort to reinforce the principle that anybody who speaks about the ways in which Islamic jihad terrorists use the texts and teachings of Islam to justify violence and supremacism is a bigot and a racist and a hate monger, you know, and they can't kill us here as they would in a Muslim country, but they can assassinate our characters, and that's what they're doing. Well, now, how are they getting all their funding? And, and they seem to be very successful. They seem to have a lot of money behind their cause. Where's that coming from? Mostly from the Saudis. Of course, you know, we've been buying oil for decades, right? And mm-hmm. paying billions into Muslim countries. They haven't been just buying swimming pools with all that. They've been using it to spread Islam around the world and to further the goals of the stealth jihad. Wow, Robert Spencer, you know, when uh, you share this kind of information with the American public, how do they respond? Well, when I speak around the country and I talk about these issues, Americans are very concerned about them. And Americans know that this is a very grave problem and a very serious situation that the country's in. The problem is, is that we don't have courageous leaders right now who are standing up and speaking about this. There are a few people... Congressman Alan West and a few other people in Congress who are aware of this issue and are speaking out about it, but mostly it's gone completely unnoticed. And you have also, of course, congressmen like John Conyers and others who do whatever the Islamic supremacists want. And, you know, they, Conyers, of course, has constituency in Detroit area and that is largely Muslim, and he's pandering to them. Now, this goes back to the law of, of Dimi or the law of Dimitude practice in Islam. Tell us a little bit about the law of Dimi. Well, the Quran in chapter 9, verse 29, it says, fight against those who do not obey Allah and his messenger, and do not forbid what he has forbidden, even if they are of the people of the book. And uh, the people of the book are the Jews and Christians who are subjugated under the rule of Islamic law. That's the Quran's term for Jews and Christians primarily. And in any case, it says, even if they are of the people of the book, fight them until they pay the jizya with willing submission and feel themselves subdued. Jizya is a special tax that the non-Muslims have to pay, that the Muslims are exempt from paying, and the idea that they have to pay it with willing submission and feel themselves subdued became an Islamic law the basis for an elaborate superstructure of laws and regulations that institutionalized discrimination and harassment of non-Muslims. And this is a so-called contract of protection. That's what dimma means. And so the dimmis are the protected people. And so it's kind of ironic. It's sort of like the protection you pay for the, to the mafia so they don't break your windows. Wow. But the contract of protection is revoked if the dimmi says something that they don't like about Allah or the Quran or Islam. And so the demonization and marginalization of freedom fighters who speak out about the Islamic threat today is in line with that. And so is that still practiced today by Muslims, especially out here in the West? No. The idea of the dimma and the institutionalized subjugation of non-Muslims is nowhere in the world today. The last places to abolish it were the Ottoman Empire, the last great Islamic empire, and Egypt, both in the 1850s, and that was done under Western pressure. But it's still part of Islamic law, and the Muslim groups today that are working to bring Islamic law to the West are clear that they want to reimpose it, and there have been attempts in Iraq to collect it from the remaining Christians in Iraq, 
and announcements by Hamas that once they are fully in power in the Palestinian Authority, they will collect it from the Palestinian Christians. And even now in Egypt, there are some Muslim Brotherhood leaders who are saying that once they take power in Egypt, they will collect it from the Coptic Christians there. Wow. So if they do instill Sharia law here in the West, a lot of the freedoms that we enjoy now would be lost, wouldn't it? Oh, yeah. Sharia denies the freedom of speech, the freedom of conscience, the idea of the equality of rights of women with men before the law, and, of course, the equality of rights of non-Muslims. Now, in your opinion, how successful have they been, and what can we start to expect to see as there's further immigration of Islam and as they continue to grow here politically in power? Well, we're going to see more and more calls for accommodation of Islamic law, and they have been very successful up to now. They will keep on being successful because the stealth jihad is really not on anybody's radar screen. Nobody is paying attention to it. Nobody is aware, really, that it exists. And so there isn't any resistance. Yeah, you know, that's why I think your book is so important, this book, Stealth Jihad. It's a, about, uh, what, four years old, but I think it's still relevant for the information that you're sharing with us today, isn't it? Yeah, well, thank you. I think so. It, it came out, yes, in 2008, and so it refers to a lot of incidents that are a bit old now, but there are many others that are like them that are still going on. And also the principles by which the stealth jihad advances, of course, are exactly the same as I explained in the book. Well, what can we do as citizens here to awaken a, a sleeping world to the threat that's right on our shores? Well, the uh, hour is very late and time is very short, but we still have to raise awareness. We still have to convince enough of our fellow citizens that this is a problem so that we can elect officials who will deal with it. And that's the big challenge still before us all these years later. Most people still have no clue that any of this is going on. And so people who are aware of this have a responsibility to tell their friends, tell their neighbors, try to convince them that this is a threat that we need to resist actively. Yeah, you know, here in Hawaii, they passed the first state here in the United States to pass Islam Day here, I believe it's September 24th, oh, yeah. a couple of years yeah. ago, and that was brought to us by a group connected with the Muslim Brotherhood right here in Hawaii. Yeah, what a surprise. Do you have Christianity Day? Do you have Judaism Day? Do you have Hinduism Day? Right, yeah, we oh. don't. You know, but they claim, well, you do have Christmas, so why can't we Muslims have, have Islam Day? And well, it, Christmas is hardly, as we know, in America in the 21st century, Christmas is hardly in its public celebrations anything particularly Christian. And so it's a specious argument. The reason, if you read the articles, was the reason was tolerance. That was the whole oh, reason behind it. Not because, you know, as you said, it's a peaceful religion or that, that Muhammad was, you know, a peaceful man or anything celebrating the life of Muhammad, spreading the peaceful religion of Islam or anything. It was all in the name of tolerance. Tolerating the radically intolerant is something we will live to regret. Uh, yes. Well, tell us about your website, and you also give a lot of information on stealth jihad and what's going on, not only in the U.S., but around the world as well. Yeah, the, the website is jihadwatch.org. That's J-I-H-A-D, watch.org. And Jihad Watch is dedicated to raising awareness, to bringing news and commentary about jihad activity in the United States and around the world on a daily basis. It's news that you won't get anywhere else, an analysis of the news that you won't get anywhere else. And much of it has to do with 
stealth jihad activity, which we do cover, and as well as violent jihad activity in the U.S. and elsewhere. Outstanding. Well, Robert Spencer, give us an example of a country where stealth jihad has been extremely successful and has really worked its way through the country. Give us an example of that. Well, the stealth jihad actually is kind of a new thing that is only in the West. For previous to this, Muslims conquered countries by armies, but they don't have an army right now that can take on the United States military. But they do have the Muslim immigrants in the West, and they have made great inroads. And so the idea is to force non-Muslims to accommodate Islamic law. And they have achieved great success in that effort. Take, for example, there was a school district a few years back, and it was a public school district, and Muslim students complained because in the public school cafeteria there was jello on the menu. Now, you know, I went through public schools all through 12 years of school, and plenty of times there was indeed jello in the school on the school lunch and i didn't know this actually until i started to research the book stealth jihad it turns out that jello is pork it's made pork hooves oh i didn't and know that so muslims, yeah uh, muslims can't eat it the gelatin comes from pork hooves and so islam forbids the eating of pork muslims don't want to eat jello now look i remember many times when I was in school, that there was something in, on the school lunch that I didn't want to eat. And I never complained about it, I just didn't eat it. And never sued anybody or made any fuss at all. But these Muslim students, obviously their parents were behind this, they not only didn't want to eat the jello, they wanted to make the jello unavailable. And this is where it becomes problematic, that they actually prevailed upon the school district to ban jello altogether from the public school menu. Now, what if you like the stuff and you're not a Muslim? It doesn't matter. You have to obey Islamic law. And this is the problem, that Islamic law asserts authority over non-Muslims. Whereas you take, for example, Jewish law, to which it's often compared, Jewish law never asserts authority over non-Jews. It's a voluntary thing. But Islamic law and asserting authority over non-Muslims ultimately wants to compel them to obey Islamic laws and practices. That's the agenda, and that's the problem. Jello might seem like a small thing, but the principle is not a small thing. The principle is that wherever Islamic law and practice conflict with American law and practice, American law and practice has to give way, and the non-Muslims have to accommodate Islam, whether they want to or not. Wow. Well, I guess in the final minutes we have here, give us a final exhortation here as to what those of us who understand or have read your book, what is it that we can do and, and what would you like to say to people in the United States and, and in the West regarding what's going on with the threat right upon our shores? Well, Pat, this is a war, you know, and it's not a war that's a shooting war, and it's not a war with armies and soldiers in uniform, but it is a war. It is unmistakably a struggle for our national and civilizational survival. And we are the soldiers. We are the ones who are fighting. We're not fighting with guns. We're not fighting in a violent way. But we are the ones that it depends upon. And if we do not stand up and defend our civilization now, then we will certainly lose many of the basic freedoms that have made this country great. And that's the problem with the stealth jihad. It is our responsibility to fight it. If we don't fight it, nobody else is going to do so. And so it's absolutely imperative upon every American who loves freedom 
and who loves the U.S. Constitution and the freedoms that it affords us to realize that these things are gravely threatened now and that it, it falls to us to defend them. And every day, as my colleague Pamela Geller says, every day when you wake up in the morning, you should think about what can I do to help save the Republic today and act on that. And it's not just empty words. This is something that if we don't do that, then we will certainly lose it. That's an outstanding message here. You've been listening to Evidence and Answers, and our guest has been Robert Spencer, one of the top Islamic scholars here in the United States. He's written numerous books on Islam, which you're going to want to get. His most recent one, we did an interview with him last week, Did Muhammad Exist? An Inquiry into Islam's Obscure Origins. Outstanding book. And the book we've been talking about, although it's a couple years old, I highly recommend you read it because the threat that is upon our shores, he really reveals in an outstanding way stealth jihad. So, Robert, thanks for being with us these past two weeks. Hey, it's a pleasure. Thank you, Pat. I hope that many will heed the warning given to us by Robert Spencer, that we are indeed in a war against a powerful spiritual force of evil upon our shores. If you ever miss any part of this interview, log on at evidenceandanswers.org, and you can listen to this interview in its entirety, along with Pat's featured articles on Islam. Pat's ministry with Probe International relies on the generous donations from you, our listeners. In order to bring quality scholars like Robert Spencer and others, Pat needs your support. If you've been blessed by this message, Please let Pat know and consider partnering with Pat in prayer and with a financial gift by logging on at evidenceandanswers.org. This will help keep Pat on the air and allow him to proclaim God's message throughout the islands. So please consider partnering with Pat today. You can log on at evidenceandanswers.org. Hope you'll be with us next week as Pat and his friends present reasons for faith and hope in Christ right here on Evidence and Answers. Evidence and Answers.